Welcome in, everybody. This fine Sunday morning to another another episode of our Creighton Volleyball Wrap-Up Podcast. We're going to break down a dominant weekend for the Jays, probably one of the most dominant weekends they've had, probably maybe since early in the non-con. Uh, the Jays went out to the East Coast and swept Georgetown. Um, none of the sets were within 10 points and then turned right around against Villanova, who you know, we alluded to on the podcast last weekend was, is normally a tough out for the Jays on the road. Um, and to combat that Villanova was also playing for their big East tournament lives and it was senior night. So there was a lot uh, of, you know, that intrinsic motivation working against Creighton um, and working in favor of Villanova, but the Jays rolled right through him again. Um, Beat them 25-11 in the first set, 25-15 in the second. The third set was back and forth until the Jays pulled away to win by seven late. And that would be that's the that was the closest set they had all weekend. So this was like the dominant Creighton Blue Jays clicking on all cylinders defensively, offensively, that they've been the team, the coaches, everybody has kind of been pursuing for the better part of two months now, right? And uh so let's dissect it and see if we can figure out how the Jays were able to finally find that magic. Um, I mean, let's start, starting with Georgetown, offensively not a pretty match, but nine aces, nine blocks. They held Georgetown to 0-17 hitting. Um, that's the second lowest an opponent has hit all season. So defensively, they were on point. And like we, like I alluded to earlier, none of the sets were close, Megan. Um what what stood out to you from that side of it, just with the connection between getting Georgetown out of sync offensively, setting up the block, and, you know, 50, 50, 58 digs and three sets for Creighton is pretty good too. So they were making it really tough for Georgetown to not only score, but to go on any kind of run that would um, give them some momentum and help them push the Jays at all. Yeah, I mean, I just thought they really controlled it almost from all aspects, honestly. Um, you know, they had nine service aces and they had eight errors, too. So, I mean, you'd like to see those errors come down a little bit. But, I mean, I think that just shows they're really aggressive back there, right? They're kind of going for it. I think all their servers really put in really aggressive serves. So that helped them out. And then I thought they were just really able to control um, Georgetown serves. So from a passing standpoint, I thought they were in system most of the time. Yeah, no, that's a good point about the serving, too, because Nora had two aces, Keely had three, Jayla had two, Abby had two. That's really the top three or four servers all year. For all of them to find the floor is is pretty pretty good sign. I think that they're locked in. Um, but, yeah, in terms of just how it connects, how it, how it helps the blocking, um, because you can you can be schematic with your serving, right? You can serve certain zones because you want them offensively setting that side of the floor um, in order to line up with your block, right? Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, you see that a lot, too. I mean, you'll see that happen to Jayla, right, because people want to, you know, kind of get her flustered so that she maybe doesn't get a good swing at it. Mm -hmm. So you kind of do the same thing, I mean, to other teams. You get people who are attacking. You get on them. You kind of disrupt maybe somewhere in the middle if somebody has to you know run up short and then they're trying to run a middle attack it just kind of gets everyone out of whack so yeah you can do a lot of things with you know dropping it short going deep between people um just targeting certain people that maybe are struggling too and 
yeah, it's just kind of like that game and it kind of progresses, you know, over actually the entire match. You just kind of see who's passing well and try to target different people and hopefully get the team out of system. Yeah, I thought, I mean, it looked like it wore into Georgetown too, which is probably why the, the match stayed as lopsided as it started because, you know, Creighton had that game plan from the jump. And, you know, I think when you have success at something that – I think when you have success maybe as a team in plan A and you get going, you get on a roll from that right away, it's probably tough for the opponent to adjust if they don't ever counter plan A, right? So, like, in Georgetown's sake, if you're getting if, – if, if Creighton's doing what they want to do, executing the game plan to that degree, um, you really need to make a big play and, like, a long rally to stem to get yourself some momentum in order for you to, to come back at them. And that really never happened. There were a lot of long rallies, but Creighton seemed to be in winning most of those. Yeah. It almost seemed, you know, Georgetown couldn't really get a break at times. I thought maybe, you know, they stayed in those plays and I thought, okay, you know, it's about their time to win one of those. Right. But yeah, Creighton just really controlled it. And um, winning those long rallies is a big deal. Even if you're, you know, handily beating a team, it's still a big deal because you don't want them to get that momentum. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you feel? Spoiler alert, they were really good offensively against Villanova. So we'll talk about that in a second, but I kind of want to ask about, because the offense, they didn't put the ball down at a high rate today. So they weren't very efficient, but they also only had nine attack errors. So they weren't making costly mistakes. If that makes sense. Like they weren't giving Georgetown points. They just weren't finding the floor. So what did you feel like was missing offensively? And also what did you feel like was, contributing to the fact that they did they were a low error despite not hitting at a high percentage yeah you know the it's a good thing that they're low error obviously you'd like to see more kills you know just from a hitter perspective but I mean I think Georgetown too I mean played pretty well defensively um mm-hmm. you know when they get a handle on it I mean I think they were equal in digs Creighton and Georgetown so yeah. Yep. um so yeah I just think Georgetown did kind of like you said stay in those long rallies and get pretty good touches when they could but yeah, I mean, I think you just like to see the offense, you know, hopefully find gaps and blocks a little bit more. I don't think that happened a ton all the time, but um, like Annika hit really well. Kiana hit decently well, but yeah, everyone else is, you know, under under 300, under 250. So yeah, I think you just got to kind of go back and look at who's open at that time and hopefully pick apart, you know, what their blockers are doing. So they hopefully have more one-on-ones or no block at all. Yeah, well, this will this will probably springboard us into the Villanova match. This next question, but you know, I think Kirsten Bernthal Booth mentioned in her post game comments after Georgetown was that you know they were hitting around the block and doing a good job of not you know um, you know just going right into it, uh, but maybe the angles they were choosing you know were just like right at the Georgetown libero or right at a back row defender who can handle it. And I mean, I think it's evidence by the fact that Georgetown had 58 digs and three sets, that's a pretty good clip, right? Usually means you're yeah. handling the ball pretty well defensively. Um, so it was it just a matter of Creighton needing to be a little bit more creative around the block, considering they were doing a good job of avoiding it, but not necessarily um, making it difficult for Georgetown to handle the, handle the, the shot. Yeah. You know, I think so. Sometimes, you know, as a hitter, it's like, okay, this is the shot they're giving me. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to hit it. Right. But I mean, their whole their whole idea is that they want to funnel it to a defender in the back row. So sometimes you get caught into that or you just think you're going to swing really hard, you know, and hopefully like they'll just 
you know, shank the pass or whatever. But yeah, yeah sometimes, you know, if you keep doing that, they'll be there. And Georgetown, I thought, got a lot of those balls up that were kind of just right in their wheelhouse and they didn't have to move um, no matter, you know, how much power was behind it. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's when you kind of have to think creatively. So you have to tip, you have to throw it off hands, um, you know, hit high, tool block, hit it sharp. So I think it's just, if, if you just take the easy swing, I think it's sometimes doesn't work so much in your favor. And so you kind of have to go back to, okay, let me change the position of my hand just a little bit to, you know, make that defender have to move. Um, yeah. So I think they got caught into that a little bit more. And then, yeah, when they played Villanova, I thought, you know, that didn't happen as much. It was like from the start against Villanova, right? Cause you could see, I think there were maybe the first four, three or three or four or five kills, however you want to, um, put it, but like they were tipping a lot. They were, they were changing speeds on their swings, changing tempo on their swings, um, cutting different angles. You saw Jayla go, um, you know, to that sideline or that sideline zone from the middle of the court, uh, in the back row, which is a tough shot. Uh, you saw Keeley go off hands on the out, on an, on an out of system ball outside. Um, did it feel like Creighton kind of like took that Georgetown match and said, all right, we, we didn't we didn't make mistakes, but we can we also need to be more creative because you know long rallies are kind of fickle. If we expect to get into a bunch of these, someday one day it might not go our way and we'll find ourselves in a hole. We gotta put the ball down a little bit sooner um, if we're gonna get into these type of type of battles, right? Yeah, I mean, I think they really did it well from the start, like you said, but I think sometimes you have to, it's something you have to think about, right? I mean, every time you go up to swing, you're not thinking like, okay, I need to hit a different angle this time, right? If you have a shot that you feel really comfortable with and you think you hit it well, a lot of times you're going to just go back to that and mm-hmm. a lot of times scout that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's just that game of trying to mix it around and hopefully catch Villanova kind of off guard and hit those gaps in their defense. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm sure they talked about it um, just from, you know, going from that Georgetown match to, Villanova so I think some of that is just like vocalizing it you just become aware and then you're like okay like I just need to do this and I thought they really did it well and it was good to see them do it well from point one yeah can you can you explain how from a hitting standpoint you're able to slow the game down enough to decide what the right approach is because you're it looks like you guys are I mean in the, the ball's in the air you're trying to line up your your, your technique, right? Like make sure your arms in the right position and you're getting as much momentum, you know, coming at the ball as possible. How do you, how do you do all that? And then while you're in the air, figure out how to, whether you're going to tip, whether you're going to go line, whether you're going cross court, whether you're going to roll shot, how do you, how do you make that decision in that time? Um, you know, some of it might start with honestly, your coaches or some teammates in your same position kind of telling you like what they're doing. So let's say for an outside, if that right back is like shading up on Jayla, then that tip's not there. So then maybe somebody tells her, but otherwise, I mean, you can kind of look over, you know, sometimes I'd look over and kind of see what they were doing or see if that tip right over the block in the middle was there, mm-hmm. you know, just depending how far their defenders are kind of spread. Um, so a little bit of it is that, and then, I mean, you have to do kind of what the block gives you, um, but you don't necessarily have to cut it sharp where that defender is. Maybe you hit the gap between, you know, middle back and right back, mm-hmm. um, like, but it's still on the side of the block. So I think certain things like that, you just have to hit gaps, but I mean, you're aware of, 
you know, the defender is probably lined up in the same place she always is. Um, so you just kind of have to look and, you know, if one thing doesn't work for you and, you know, one point, then you got to try something different. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the, the Jays stayed low error in this one. So they had, I mean, well, they take 200 swings this weekend, 19 total attackers. That's money. You know what I mean? You want, mm-hmm. you want that if you're Creighton's offense, you, you, I mean, that's a, that's a really good number. Um, although the way Creighton is wired, they're going to go back and think that's too high and can be lower, but uh, that's another story. Uh, but still this time they put the ball down. They had 20 more kills in the same amount of attempts than they did the night before. Um, how, how did, did you notice anything in terms of how Kendra got on sync with all of those hitters? Like, I mean, that the numbers just are staggering when you look at them and the fact that it hasn't, we haven't seen a match like that all year offensively. What do you think? Did, did Villanova just uh, get a little bit sideways and then it just got kind of got easy once Creighton got rolling? Or was there something you know? Because there, there was certainly one thing I noticed, and I'm just curious, like what from a schematic standpoint did, did Creighton do offensively that got them in sync across the board? <clears throat> You know, I thought she spread it around really well, and I thought they got that slide going, too, um, mm-hmm. behind the setter. Um, and I thought Kiana and Annika hit that really well. I mean, Kiana hit 778, which is just a crazy number. Um, yeah. So, so but, cool. <laughs> yeah. So, I think from that standpoint, I just thought she spread it around really well. And then I thought they moved around their outsides a little bit, you know, dropped them inside mm-hmm. or um, hit them out at, at the pin. So, I think certain things like that, you know, maybe you wouldn't notice as much, but just a little bit of movement can really disrupt the blockers on the other side. And I thought they did that well. And then I also thought Kendra made them worry about her um, just because she, you know, mm-hmm. had a couple of jumps where she just really threw it down. So those defenders had to had to bite on her and those blockers had to, you know, remember to stay with her. Um, so I think she just did a really nice job of making herself an option and then making everyone else an option too. It's wild too, because I don't think Kendra – dumped very much like in sets two and three but mm-hmm. she was but she was really aggressive in one that, mm-hmm. the, from, so from a from a like a just a tone setting standpoint she introduced that early in the match and even though she didn't go to it um the rest of the way it probably made villanova like i don't know if you're a fight fan but like you know when you, you watch if you watch fighting if you like watch a boxer or an mma fighter like if they start you know, going lower, going to the body, it changes like a, a, the fighter's eye line. So then it opens things up upstairs, right? I think Kendra, by being aggressive with her dumps early in set one, just like put that in Villanova's mind, like, hey, we got to worry about this kid because she's going to go after us aggressively if we don't account for her. And like you said, it seemed to open up everything else because she didn't call her own number very much, but she didn't really have to either the way everybody else was hitting yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think that's why you really want to get your setter involved early because mm. um, it just makes people worry about you. You know, even if they have to talk about you and almost hesitate a little bit, um, even if you're not dumping, it just creates disruption. I mean, you'll see the same thing happen too. Sometimes you'll game plan like, okay, let's establish our pins and then let's hit them inside in the middle so that their blockers are spread. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are certain things like that and maybe it's, maybe it's opposite. Let's establish the middle and then let's, you know, hit the pins really hard because those blockers are going to be trailing because they're in tighter. So just certain things like that, like the puzzle of it is just, is interesting. And yeah, having that active setter really just creates a lot of chaos, um, especially mm-hmm. because, you know, she's that second contact, so she can really do whatever she wants with that ball. Right. Exactly. 
Um, Keely Davis, 11 kills on 18 swings, one of her more efficient matches. Um, and that, and they all, I, from a pattern standpoint, did you like, it seems like Creighton's starting to open it up a little bit. Like they know they can't just roll out the same way they've been, you know, and start to win these postseason matches as they, as, as it gets closer, they're starting to, you know, go into the playbook a little bit and get a little bit more creative to see if they can unlock something offensively. And I thought, you know, they, they set the one with Keeley to last night, which was, I don't know if they've <laughs> done that all year. Um, and I, certainly not a shot she's hit throughout her career being an outside. So um, just in terms of like getting that, that quick middle attacks with, with Kiana and Keeley, um, did you see something that, tra- that can translate going forward in terms of how they executed that last night? Yeah, you know, I didn't think they went through it all that much, but at the same time, it's another one of those scenarios where it makes the blocker think, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe Keely isn't getting the ball, but if she's screaming loud enough and convincing the blocker she's going to get the ball, then yeah. the blocker is going to stay with her. So I think you'll see that happen a little bit. And then, yeah, I mean, I just thought everybody was really efficient and hitting different shots. I thought Keely, when she was on the outside, too, kind of hit that sharp, that sharp cross-court ball a little bit more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, she just kind of gave, you know, them a different look um, compared to what Jayla and, you know, maybe Nora would do on the outside. But, I, yeah, I really like the rotation kind of a just having Keely on the right or Jayla on the right. You know, they can just do a lot of things. And it's really nice when you have players that are comfortable hitting from both sides um, and just do it really efficiently, too, on, you know, both pins. Yeah, 100%. Jayla got to a really good start in this match. Um, oh. It was just in my head, and I just lost it. Um, yeah, it was. It goes along the line of uh, along the lines of of the how frequently something is used. Right, Keely did get a kill off that one. Kiana did get a kill off that one. And like you said, sometimes when it just happens in a match, then you start to be you start to verbalize it. You make the defense aware of it, and then that just slows up everything else in the chain in the chain reaction and it opens up something out there if Kendra can see it. Uh, so the fact that Creighton went to it when they, when the one really hasn't been a part of their, it hasn't been a staple of their offense at any point this year. Right. At least not compared to years past when they've had really dominant middles like yourself, Lauren Smith, um, Kelly Browning, when, when you, when they've introduced, when they introduce it like that and they've executed it now in a match, how much uh, does that concern like a Villanova when they're trying to figure out, you know, which way to go. Because you said get, blocking is a guessing game in some aspects, right? So you have to just go off instinct and make a read and make a play and hope it works out. How much did, did that um, compromise Villanova's defense just because they were able to execute it early in the match? Yeah, I think it's another instance, like you said, when they do it early in that match and then you're in the back of your head, right? You're like, okay, this could be coming at me again as a blocker. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it makes them worry a little bit about it. Um, you know, maybe if they execute it a few more times, you know, you might see teams worry about it more, um, down the road when they're scouting Creighton. Um, but yeah, I just think it's a really good option to have and something, yeah, that they really hadn't run that consistently, um, earlier in the season. So if they can kind of get that one working and have that slide option too, I think it'll give them a really good look for those middles. How typical is it to introduce new patterns? this late into a season. I mean, do you, are you throughout some of your teams, were you, were you trying to throw in new wrinkles and see if they, they, you know, see if you could find something um, offensively that 
wasn't already on film that you felt like you could steal some points on in a big match coming up? Yeah, I mean, I think you're always trying to work, you know, work into new things. And I mean, you're at the point in the season, too, where teams have a lot of film to scout you on. Um, So you just kind of have to maybe throw in something that um, is new. And I think, you know, the players that are doing it feel comfortable doing it. So you're kind of like, why not? Um, But yeah, I think you're just you're at that point in the season, too, where you're just like fine tuning. So, you know, as much as you learn new skills in the beginning of the season and preseason and stuff, um, you know, that it's not happening as much. So you're just kind of trying to fine tune and maybe add in, you know, a little something that can kind of give you a flair or hopefully get you, you know, one or two points um, in a big match. So I think, you know, you'll maybe see them run a few more patterns and, you know, bring their outsides inside on a two more, you know, drop the slide in, you know, a little bit farther from the pin. So Mm. just certain things like that, I can really just disrupt blockers and defense. Some on the other side, I think could be really beneficial for them. Gotcha. Um, Creighton hit 484 in transition last night against the Wildcats. So that's, I mean, that's an absurd number, first of all, but it's also like kind of an area where Creighton hasn't been terribly consistent. They've tried to focus on scoring more in transition and, and being more efficient on, on top of it, but they didn't get, they, I don't think they got blocked at all. I think they were 34 for 60, 60. Let me see what it was. I don't know. 34 for 66 or something like that. It was crazy. Um, what was working in transition for the Jays? That hasn't been always an area where they've been able to score at a high rate. Um, and it's something they've been trying to, you know, get going their, their, their dig transition. What, what made them successful last night in your opinion? I, you know, I thought they really nailed their passes. I mean, even on, you know, Villanova's good attacks, I thought they got those passes up to the net and got them in system. So uh, Creighton had all their options, um, you know, which can be a really big deal um, just when you're in that transition um, offense. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was passing um, and they just controlled it well. And then I also thought Kendra spread it out well and kind of got everybody Mm -hmm. involved, you know, just didn't hit the typical, you know, maybe outside ball. Um, or that right side, I thought she got the middles involved and kind of gave them a different look um, than they were previously able to do just because of passing and being in system. Yeah, her distribution for as many first for as many transition balls as they got up last night, her distribution is really well balanced. I mean, you look at Nora's at 20, uh, Jayla's at 29, Keely 18, Annika 16, Kiana 9. It wasn't just the efficiency, but that that balance right there, especially with how many balls were you know, not first ball, uh, first ball kills. Like that's pretty impressive for Creighton too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you like to see that spread any day, but you had to have a middle in there too with those numbers, 16 attempts, Annika, and then you have your, all your pins, you know, up there as they typically would be. And then Keanu was super efficient, but didn't quite get as many attempts. So, you know, I thought everybody did a really good job with all the balls they were given. Um, so I think that's another really good thing to see. And, yeah, low air was the thing that really stuck out to me for this match from, you know, across the board, which is really good to see. How important is your transition offense in postseason play, especially because, you know, you're just not it, it just seems like the, one, the the first ball attack is is it's not that it's not important, but to rely on that is a pretty difficult way to be successful, I think, because teams are going to do, do things from a server serve standpoint that are going to take you out of that rhythm. Um, they're gonna they're gonna scout you to try to you know exploit your weaknesses on your first ball offense. How important is that dig transition to to make sure you get multiple hitters in sync with that and you know and that your passing really is um, kind of at its best at this point in the season because that's 
because of how much you need to score out of that out of that side of your offense. I mean, I think it's really important, especially I think the teams, you know, you play in the postseason are, you know, better defensively than maybe somebody you'd play um, in conference. Um, but, yeah, I think once you get into that NCAA tournament, I mean, every team is just flying around and trying to get every single ball, you know, just leave mm. it all out there. So, yeah, I think if you can just be really efficient and, you know, not give teams – points um you know from errors and that sort of thing mm -hmm. it just becomes really important and then yeah when you transition and you have a second attempt um you know to get a kill I think you know you're thinking okay I need to put this away because you know we don't want this rally to go on and on right. and on um, but yeah I think if you're just able to be really terminal um in that transition offense I think it's just it just becomes so great for your team because you know you're not in those long points where you you know get winded and you know it can really go either way and transition offense is where you get most of your momentum from, right? When you're, when it's like, all right, we hit one at you, you hit one at us. Who can who can execute this kind of like this? Uh, I don't know how to put it. You know, it's a little bit unpredictable at that point, right? The ball's not going to a spot you're expecting. You're not lined up offensively. You're kind of just covering the court at that point and trying to react out of it. You know, the momentum that you get from from being good in transition in a match is probably pretty powerful, right? Especially if you can get like they got last night when they're hitting 484 at transition. That's a lot of deflating points for Villanova when they feel like they defended the first ball well, um, and yet they're still giving up points. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I just think it's it's such a momentum swing at times. And, you know, it can be chaotic too, you know, at yeah. times. Maybe the pass isn't, you know, where you thought it'd be or, you know, somebody gets like one hand on it. Um, and then you run your offense out of it. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, if you're just flying around and trying to get touches, it's not always the prettiest thing um, and when you're transitioning. But, yeah, if you're able to come out on top and get those kills, I think it really, you know, gives your team confidence and um, just kind of shows you that you can, you know, do anything in the match and beat the other team. Yeah. I don't know how much you, you prescribe to this next theory, but uh, Nebraska coach John Cook said that teams that usually make um, – you know, deep runs in the NCAA tournament, get to the final four, win national championship, et cetera, are usually the teams that can, that like hit 300 and um, keep opponents below, like in that 150 area and below. That's kind of like what his baseline has kind of always been in terms of who he's looking at as teams that have that potential. So right now Creighton's offense isn't at that spot, but their defense certainly is. I mean – this might be the best defensive team that Creighton's ever had. Statistically speaking, obviously um, you can get into the weeds a little bit if you want to about how good it actually is, but defensively it's hard to argue with what they're doing. I mean, they, this weekend, they, like I said, Georgetown hit 017. That's the second lowest any teams hit on them all season. Uh, Villanova turned right around and remember I line it was senior night and Villanova needed to win because they got to keep pace with the Paul with only two matches left, three matches left now for that last Big East tournament spot. And they hit 108. And, when, you know, that so, – so there's a couple things here. One, Creighton's defense is now um, – yeah, Creighton's defense now is <laughs> – they're holding opponents to 125 hitting on the season. 125 on the season through 29 matches. They're 26-3. and three. They, they – and you look back at uh, just 
the last 10. Marquette hit 252 in that match in, in, in Omaha. And then no, no team that Creighton has played since, including UConn and Marquette and DePaul on the road. No team has hit over 170, 180. No team has hit over 180 against them in the last 10 matches. I mean, not only from a blocking standpoint, but just passing, digging, all that. Like they're 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 on a different level defensively right now. Yeah, I think the thing that sticks out to me, I guess, probably as a former blocker, um, is just how good they've been blocking this year. And I think it's just been really consistent, even from the start when their offense wasn't clicking. Mm. Um, but yeah, defensively, I think they've kind of had that all year and it continues to get better. Um, so yeah, blocking and, um, their digs are just consistently good across the board. And I think they're getting better offensively. I think that's an exciting thing. You know, they're, they're peaking at the right time and kind of in that skill, um, and being really efficient. Um, so hopefully they can continue on that trajectory just offensively and have the really good parity that they've shown in several matches so far. Um, but yeah, if they kind of get that all together and, you know, consistently keep that blocking and defense and get that hitting to be really efficient, I think it could be really fun to see what they do. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, you're probably right. I mean, well, first of all, just one more note on the, def- on the defense they've 13 times this year in 29 matches. Now they've held the opponent to sub 100 hitting. That's, that's really dominant defensively, first of all, and, and no Creighton team, they have, two regular season matches left and then Big East tournament and split tournament, but already they've had more sub 100 defensive matches than any Creighton team ever. So it just speaks to, excuse me, it just speaks to how, how well they've played on that side of, on that side of the ball. Um, But offensively you're, you're, you're right. They are, they have been getting progressively better. I don't know why I'm suddenly, hold on, let me get a drink. It's wintertime, man, in Nebraska. I don't know what to tell y'all. Um, yeah, I mean, they hit 245 against Marquette, 273 at DePaul, 286 against Xavier. Um, the one, like, outlier, I guess, here is 183 against Butler. But Butler, again, again, like you talked about last weekend, Butler and Creighton are the two best defensive teams in the league. So the fact that that was a rock fight wasn't terribly surprising if you if you understood that going in. Um, the two eight, the two eighteen against Georgetown was probably like, all right, that's it's low error, but they didn't terminate like they need to terminate at this point in the season, right? But then they turned right around again and took that like, hey, that was a really dominant performance against Georgetown, but we also left some points on the on the on the floor out there because we didn't terminate um, those long rallies earlier, and they went out against Villanova and didn't you know corrected those mistakes, right? They didn't. They didn't hit into the block as much. They didn't hit into the, into the defense as much into that back row. They found angles to put the ball down sooner. Hit four twenty six. So when you look at this last six matches, their offense has had a little bit of an uptick from where they were hitting before. Um, I don't have the. I don't. I didn't break down the numbers, but you know, two forty five, two seventy three, two eighty six, and then a four twenty six mixed in there. That's uh-huh. that. That can that can make that can make for some easy nights for you if your defense is. Again, holding teams to 150 and below usually on most nights. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just think, you know, they've done a great job defensively. I think those, yeah, numbers kind of speak for themselves. But, yeah, the offense, I think hopefully, you know, they continue on in these last two regular season matches and play really well offensively and have really clean matches, um, you know, and keep that defense kind of where it's at. Um, But, yeah, I think it'll serve them really well when they get to the Big East Championship and into the NCAA tournament, too. 
Yeah, so, I mean, defensively, they're going to be tested this weekend coming up, too, so we'll get to see. I mean, from a standpoint, offensively, they'll be tested, too, because St. John's isn't an easy team to score on um, with the way they block historically. So, and then Seton Hall isn't easy to score on with the way they handle the ball. So, and and, and Seton Hall just beat UConn this weekend, who a UConn team that's kind of been flying under that Creighton-Marquette radar. They've just been winning matches, getting them done quickly, dominating – everybody else um they also have they already have a win over Creighton but they haven't played Creighton or Marquette in a minute so they're kind of waiting for Milwaukee to get another crack at the top of the league while they just handle the rest of it Seton Hall beat that team this weekend so in terms of like what's left for the Jays on the schedule they have two home matches but Seton Hall and St. John's are not going to be easy outs for them I think it's going to be a really good last weekend test before postseason play starts before surviving advance portion starts because St. John's has a win over the Jays already this year and Seton Hall is going to come in with some momentum after beating UConn this weekend. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, I think that St. John's game honestly is kind of a toss up, you know, you, you really never know what St. John's team is going to show up. Um, right. Yeah. You so, you know, I don't know if they're going to play well or just not play well at all. Um, but yeah, Seton Hall, you know, is kind of that question mark too now. I mean, that they beat UConn. Um, I don't think anyone really expected, <laughs> expected uh-uh. that, but um, yeah, I don't know. You know, usually they're fired up, Seton Hall is, and same thing with St. John's. So it'll be really fun to see, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I think either one could really go, you know, either way. But I think at the same time, Creighton will be really prepared, and I'm assuming senior days, um, that St. John's match. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I'm curious, like, the one there's some – there's going to be motivation for Creighton to play well against St. John's because St. John's beat them, right? That'll be in their memory bank. They won't have – they won't need, they won't lack for motivation when, when the Red Storm are there. But I'm just curious, like when you have a match like you had against Villanova and you play well defensively like you did all weekend, you just dominate your opponent. Like, I mean, there was only one set within 10 points. That's, that's domination. There's no other way to put it. What's the attitude like on, well, I guess, when do you practice next? You have Sunday travel day, Monday off. When, when you get in the gym on Tuesday, um, how do you take a step forward and not rest on your laurels? Like, how do you fight? How do you combat that when you're like, Oh man, we, we were awesome last weekend. We're flying <laughs> high right now. Like, how do you, how do you get better that week in practice after that? Um, you know, I think you just try to get a little bit better at all, at everything, right. At all the skills. Um, and you, you know, you can't look past Seton Hall and St. John's but at the same time. I mean, you have to take any time, you know, you have practice time because it's, you know, few and far between at this point in the season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to kind of have that goal of winning a big championship and then, you know, getting wins in the NCAA tournament. So, yeah. I mean, that's the whole reason you're preparing and hopefully getting better and hopefully peaking too here in the next couple of weeks and playing your best volleyball of the year. So, yeah, I think just taking care of Seton Hall and going through that scout and then doing the same thing for St. John's, but at the same time, just raising your level because, you know, you have to be there in just a few short weeks. You have to be playing your best volleyball and, you know, hopefully playing Marquette or, you know, UConn in the Big East Championship, you know, or DePaul. So, yep. um, yeah, I just think it's that it's that goal and it's the exciting time of the season because, you are you know, you're finally getting that third chunk of season where it's, it's really fun um, and it's really, you know, like just win or go home. Yeah, so I mean, your Creighton's is pretty scout based, uh, but do you get excited right now when you come back to the gym and you say, and it's the last weekend of the regular season, and you can finally 
the Big East tournament and NCAA tournament are kind of within view because it's it's just like you said, you kind of Creighton plays for that moment, but they have to go through two months to get there, right? Of Big East play where they're like, let's just be honest, it might not be the most exciting weekend for you. Like if you have to go play like a Georgetown or something like that, and it's their last place in the Big East, there might lack for some motivation, right? Because it's just not. There's just not someone that's going to bring the best out of you at that moment. But when you know that the Big East tournament is coming up or like this last weekend of the regular season where Seton Hall and Creighton have had some, you know, pretty chippy battles where you play in a St. John's who's beaten you already this season where the NCAA tournament is two weeks away. Does that become, does that come into focus again where you're like, all right, here's it's end game now time. It's time for us to, to lock in and be at our best. Like you said. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we would always talk about how October is just kind of difficult, um, yeah. you know, just playing volleyball because you're traveling so much. I mean, you're just you're in conference, you know, you're in the thick of conference play and traveling your home and October can just be really long. But you get to November and, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel is kind of there because, it's, you know, the last weekend of November is that biggest championship. And then you roll right in after you're done and you get seated and, you know, the NCAA tournament starts. So it just becomes mm-hmm. that really exciting time of the year. Um, yeah, so I think it's just some extra motivation and the long part of season is really over. So, I mean, they just have to take care of two more matches in the conference and yeah. then, you know, get into that biggest championship. So I think right now, you know, you're, you're gearing up and I think you're excited as a player because, I mean, kind of your final goals are within reach and hopefully mm-hmm. you can go out and play your best volleyball of the year um, and hoist that trophy. Yeah, there's a couple of things that are in focus right now for Creighton. Um, they're 14 and two with two with one weekend left. So when we're, we're recording this on Sunday, so there's big East matches still to be played right now. Um, so either at the end of the day today, Creighton will be tied with Marquette for first place, or they'll have a, a matchup um, with two to go. Um, UConn's locked into that third spot. DePaul's sitting at nine and six right now, entering the day. Butler's at eight and seven. So one more win by DePaul. Knocks Villanova out of consideration. That's why last night was a big match for Villanova and why it was so imp- impressive what Creighton did. Um, yeah, Villanova. So there might be only five teams left, uh, you know, with anything really um, concrete to play for at that last weekend. So that's what DePaul's looking at right now. Honestly, if they win today, um, that's a pretty big step because they beat Butler the other night. So that gets them the, the tiebreaker over the Bulldogs. That's the way the Big East shakes out. St. John's and Seton Hall are kind of in spoiler territory right now. I'm not quite sure what the what the uh, baseline um, qualification is for the NIVC, which is the for basketball fans listening, it's like the NIT of volleyball that just came into play a couple of years ago. Um, you know, St. John's and Seton Hall are both hovering around 500 overall records, even though they're five and ten, both five and ten league play. So they'll have some, like, they'll either have a chance next weekend when they come to Omaha to play the spoiler and use that as their, you know, as their motivation um, to keep going, or they'll have a chance to play for a postseason bid um, in that secondary tournament. Um, So they'll have something going on for them in Omaha, on top of the fact that they just get to beat Creighton, which is probably every team in the league loves to do that if they get a chance to, so... That's the way the Big East shakes out right now. Creighton's also in pretty good, a pretty good space for um, hosting. The RPI is still good. They're at twenty six and three right now. But um, and then 
the matches they have coming up are going to be high RPI matches. So that's if they get through this last weekend, um, they're looking at nothing but re- resume enhancers, right? So that's probably something you'd like to see as opposed to, like you said, that October drag where it's where there's just RPI man, um, um, RPI minefield at some, some, to some degree, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think these both these teams will be geared up. Like you said, I mean, anytime you can play Creighton and beat Creighton, I think you're going to be ready to go. So mm-hmm. it'll be fun. Hopefully, you know, those teams play well and Creighton plays equally well. So, yeah, it'll be really fun. And then rolled into that Big East Championship. That's right. Yeah, I'm very curious to see how Creighton uses this weekend because I think, like, defensively they've been on point. I'm not – it's – so I guess – that's there's it's twofold defensively they've been on point so can they sustain it can they keep it going um and can they make sure they're locked in on that on that side of the thing on that side of the ball um going into their important matches right and then offensively can they take what they did not only against Villanova but being low error against Georgetown and then being really efficient against Villanova can they take that um look at the film dissect the things that worked well uh, and then translate that going forward because that is the that has been the one missing piece we've talked about, right? The offense has kind of come and gone. They've had matches where they'll have two hitters on, they'll have three hitters on, but they haven't really had a match like Villanova where they've had just there isn't an answer out there for the defense. Um, can they translate that? That'll be curious to see going forward, especially because St. John's is tough. Like St. John's can score you know, in system, out of system, um, Rostelli's a stud. Like they'll challenge Creighton from a defensive standpoint, but also offensively can Creighton keep up. That was the tough part in Queens, right? Like that was a match of runs, of, of big runs, really. Momentum swung in big directions both ways. So you see that both teams are capable of doing it, um, which means you can't rest on your laurels even in the match when you have like a six-point lead or a five-point lead because the other team is capable of recovering from that with the offensive firepower they have. So that's why St. John's will be fun. Like, and it just gives Creighton a chance to get some payback late in the season. Normally they're not playing a team late in the year. That's got their number already, but it'll, that'll, that'll be interesting from that standpoint. Don't you think? True. Yeah. I think that will be interesting. And, you know, just from the offensive um, standpoint, I think they kind of found the rotation of people, um, you know, now that they feel really comfortable with, and I think are, are being really efficient. So I think a lot of that too, early in the season, they, they didn't really know, uh, you know, who's going to play in certain positions or, you know, if Keely was going to be in the front row or, you know, who the middles were going to be in that rotation. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think they just kind of found what works for them. So that's really good to see. And, you know, it has been what, like a week or so that I think these players have been in this rotation playing together in games. So mm-hmm. I think hopefully it'll just continue to get better and they'll just, you know, get kind of comfortable playing next to each other and know what sets are going to be where and that sort of thing. So hopefully it can just kind of keep them getting better and better every single match they play. Yeah. That's the curse and the blessing of having a deep talented roster, right? Is it allows for a lot, a, a longer sample of experimentation, but at some point, you know, cream rises to the top. Yeah, you got to kind of find what you're going to go with as your baseline, you know, and mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, that doesn't mean that somebody else, you know, won't come in and yeah, right. um, make an exactly. impact. But I think, you know, yeah, that is the blessing and the curse. I mean, you see people kind of out of that rotation or in that rotation at different times. Um, but, you know, hopefully they kind of found what works for them and um, it'll just be that consistent um, lineup and they can get really comfortable and play really good, clean volleyball. Yeah. And not to put too much pressure on her, 
But historically, this is normally when someone has made a like, or someone who in the middle of their career has made like a big jump. I don't know why, but it just has happened. Like Taryn Cloth, I remember maybe right before her, the end of her junior year, just like it looked like the light bulb went on. Uh, Marissa Wilkinson, <laughs> right before the end of her junior year, like they were just all of a sudden, you know, double digit kill matches, high hitting percentages, low errors. Uh, it just felt like it clicked at some, for something. I mean, I don't know if there's if it's just like when postseason play comes into view that that's what like flips the switch. But it, there's a there's an opportunity here. I think like when you look at the way Kiana's playing um, or the way Keeley's been playing lately, like that might be like that might be a springboard for those two because they're not um, when 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 it hasn't been there all season. This might be the time where they catch they catch that momentum and use it to to go into postseason play. It's it's happened historically. So when I look at these small sample sizes we're putting together right now at the end of the season, those are two that have been playing really well lately. And I'm curious to see if it if it translates as these you know as these big matches start to come up again on the schedule. So we'll have to find out. That's what it's fun time of the year, regardless, <laughs> right? I mean, I think that's what's going on right now. My juices are flowing because it's not boring anymore. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think the players feel that too. I mean, it's just, it's like the yeah. best part of season, you know, yeah. you gotta hopefully win championships and then hopefully make a deep run too in that tournament. And it's just new and exciting for a lot of, you know, players too. So it'll just be really fun to hopefully see them play really well. Yeah. I'm curious too. Like we don't know if Jayla's coming back next year. She has <laughs> the option to supposedly they've already made that decision. Um, the one thing I'm curious about is like, how much does last season still stick in their, in their heads a little bit? Like, cause I remember I was there the first day of practice and they were going through this really tough conditioning drill and it was starting to wear on them a little bit. And Jayla was loud. Like as they were getting, <laughs> yeah. towards the, as they were getting towards the end of that and it was wearing them down, she was like screaming, like we're not getting beat in the first round again, not getting beat in the first round again, something to that effect as she tried to like rally everybody to, find that that final gear to get through the conditioning drill and i feel like that's something that's going to come back up at this point right they're going to remember more head state a little bit more than they did maybe in october right because in october that's not really what you're focused on you're trying to get to um this point of the year where you have a chance to play for that now that that it's like all right the big east regular season title is within view if we handled business this last weekend the big east tournaments out there in milwaukee for us you know, and then we get to watch the selection show and see where we go and see who we play. I think Moorhead State, that first round loss last year, is going to creep back into the forefront and motivate them because it was a motivating factor in conditioning in, in the in the offseason. And I feel like when it's a when it's a motivating factor in the preseason, it's somewhere in your mind when when a big match rolls around and you feel like, all right, now we want to be better versions of, the, of who we were last year. That's how we started. Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, I think that's why you see, you know, great players raise their level when, you know, when the time comes and they're motivated, um, you know, just to beat teams, but also, yeah, the memory of, of losing in that first round, uh, I'm sure is sticking with um, the players from last year, especially. Um, But yeah, I think it'll be really fun and hopefully everyone will just kind of raise their level and, you know, it's go time at that point in the season and Mm -hmm. you have nothing to lose and you just have to go after it and play your best volleyball. Gotcha. 
Well, Megan, we always appreciate your insights. Um, and we appreciate the listeners for tuning in all season. Uh, we've got a couple weeks left, so we'll keep coming at you. Um, next week, Creighton plays Seton Hall and St. John's at DJ Sokol Arena to wrap up the regular season. And then they'll head to Milwaukee for the Big East tournament. I feel like they're in really good position to host that first round regional, at least. Um, so there's a chance that this isn't the final home weekend for the Jays, but go out and watch them just in case it is, because this is a really good team. They're starting to click fire on all cylinders. Um, so go out and make that a crazy crowd, especially if it's uh, Jayla Zimmerman's last chance to play at home. She's had an incredible career. Um, Naomi Hickman as well. Naomi, shout out Naomi Hickman. Just became the all-time winningest volleyball player in Creighton history, uh, past uh, past the goat Jaylee Winters this weekend um, against Georgetown. So shout out Naomi's had a great career too. Uh, yeah, just uh, coming down to the end, coming down to the end. Um, yeah, for Megan, I'm Matt. Thank you for tuning into our Creighton volleyball wrap up podcast. We will have more analysis for you as the season rolls along, um, starting next week. Thanks for tuning in.